Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate and undergraduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. My name is Emma Lagan. I am your host for today, and I have with me Dr. Amara Solari of Penn State University. So Dr. Solari, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Solari is actually not in an anthropology field directly, but her work does relate to anthropology, and so she is here to give us a lecture uh, at the university today about art and anthropology. And so she's in the art history department. Mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Solari, can you tell me a little bit more about your research? Sure. Uh, by training, I'm a Mayanist. So I work in probably the first hundred years uh, before contact with Europeans and about the 200 years after contact. So kind of bridging that what we call the pre-Columbian divide that we all know as scholars as kind of BS, um, but we go with that name anyway. And my research looks uh, at northern Yucatan and specifically is looking at how the Mayas in that particular time period used material culture of various forms, visual culture, material culture, to basically negotiate the form of Catholicism that was being practiced really in those first 200 years of contact. So to be able to do that, I need to have a really good understanding of what was going on before conversion and then after conversion. So what sort of things do you look at for that transition? Okay, so with my dissertation in my first book, I was really looking at space. So I was looking at architecture and anything that would lend insight into how Mayas would think about sacred landscapes. So this means I was looking at urban design, I was looking at early colonial maps and cartographs, I was even translating um, myth histories that were written in Mayan in the colonial period to understand how the Maya understood space to be made sacred and kept sacred, because ultimately I was looking at sites where Catholic churches were built directly on top of pyramids. Hmm. And so trying to understand what some scholars call the usurpation of space, which sounds ridiculous <laughs> to me, um, but that's what they call it, um, to understand like how would a Maya, you know, who's living during this transition, kind of take the same sense of sacrality they once had for the deities that were venerated at that pyramid and transfer them to the newly introduced Christian godhead or the Field of Saints, or the Virgin Mary, any of those kinds of things. And could you talk a little bit about what the colonization experience is like? So what, when that happened, um, who's doing the colonization, how that's happening, essentially? Sure. So the Spaniards, and the mostly Spanish people, uh, they arrive in the main, on the American mainland in, about 15, in 1519, and they first... I, well, I'm going to use the word conquer, but we know it's not an easy process. Uh, the Mexica Empire, the Aztecs. And then they don't really have a good foothold in the Maya area until about a decade or two later. So they're trying to make headway in the Maya area. But the Maya area, at the time of contact, particularly the Yucatan Peninsula, is divided into at least 16 different kingdoms. And so this political fragmentation in fact, makes it really, really difficult for the Spaniards to actually make a permanent colony there. So it's not until 1541 uh, when they, the Spaniards, it's really on the third time, they're actually just one family, it's the third time, I don't know, maybe the sixth or seventh time the Spaniards are trying to do this, they finally are able to make a permanent settlement at Campeche, which is located kind of halfway down the western coast of Yucatan. 
from there, they find uh, Merida, which will become the capital of the provincial region uh, in 1541. And they build that on the ruins of a rather large Maya city called Tijo. And from there, they start a massive evangelical campaign. So they build about 220 churches. That's a lot. That's a lot. In the first 200 years of contact. Some people have called this the biggest building of religious structures, the the largest religious building campaign the world has ever seen. Some of these churches are full-scale monasteries. Wow. Huge naves, four courts, cloisters, everything you would expect from kind of a European equivalent. Some of these are one-room chapels. Okay, so when I say 220, it kind of runs the gamut. So these monasteries, I'm using the word monastery um, kind of loosely here in Spanish, conventos or convents, um, they are understood as community centers. So they fill a very different role than they would have filled in Europe, where to be in a monastic order in this time period means you were kind of outside of lived society, right? These are spaces of cloistering contemplation. Not so in the Americas. These really are the nexus points of the Spanish Hispanization project. So this is the Spanish authorities trying to make the indigenous population into proper vassals of the Spanish crown. So first and foremost, this means converting them to Catholicism. It means trying to teach them Spanish, maybe Latin, if they're of elite enough status. It means um, getting people to attend mass. It means getting people to not be polygamous, to wear the right clothes, basically trying to make them into Spanish-esque kinds of people. It means making them live in defined urban environments, which are oriented around these churches. What I want to ask is, is that was that an easy process? So, I mean, I feel like nobody ever likes being conquered, essentially, or having somebody come in and say, this is how you're going to live now, right? So it sounds like in the area that you're working, they navigated bringing what they had before in with the new uh, religion. But how does that really play out? It was a really tricky time period and tricky process. And it's hard to understand um, exactly what this process looks like, particularly in the first couple generations, because the evidence for that is very scant. So you have friars writing letters back to the authorities, either ecclesiastical authorities or administrative authorities in Spain or maybe in Mexico City, that are saying they're having this really successful time, all the natives are converted, and they're using things like natives. Um, but on the ground, that's probably not happening so smoothly, right? So archaeologically, you see evidence of churches that start to be built, and then they're abandoned because, oh, I don't know, the Mayas run away into the forest. <laughs> because really, the entire southeastern zone of the Yucatan Peninsula, all the way into what is now Belize and part of Guatemala, that was never really officially conquered by the Spaniards. Okay, That was really what in this colonial period they called Monte, or I guess the bush would be the, the the best translation in English. It was understood as kind of this wild no man's land. And a lot of Maya who were Christianized and had spent some time in these mission towns, they flee to the Monte. And so this is always a problem, like trying to keep these mission towns populated. In general, the closer the towns are to Merida, to that capital city, the higher the likelihood that they're going to stay populated. What's remarkable to think about is that 
in our understanding of this process, these mission towns, these missions, maybe had two friars living in them at any point in time. So they are these huge architectural complexes and two friars. And then maybe a congregation of, it depends where we're looking and what what date we're talking about, but 400 to 4,000 people. And of course, with the diseases coming through, these population is constantly in flux because of that as well. And who was doing the building of these churches? Great question. All Maya labor. So the million dollar question is, how do you walk into a town (laughs) and convince all of these people to build this really weird architectural form because, you know, interior space like this does not exist. Right. And I will say that we're still working on the answer to that question. Okay. Um, There has been some recent research by historians and they're going into kind of they're charting the big building campaigns up against local politics. And it seems as though in the colonial period, elite indigenous families are doing exactly what they had always done in the pre-Columbian time period. They're using projects of civic works, i.e. church building, as opposed to pyramid building, as basically a political tool. And so I think this is a moment where we tend to look at the churches that dot the Amerindian landscape as moments of violence. And of course, that's part of it. But they also afforded the opportunity for indigenous continuance of very ancient traditions, which, again, it looks Christian, so we think there must be this violent rupture, but maybe not. Maybe we're thinking about this in too kind of of a binary way. And your work, you said, mostly is looking at the spaces and trying to understand spaces. My earliest work is looking at space. Okay. Okay, my earliest work. So my first book was looking at um, exactly what's happening in terms of urban design and, and architecture. My second project, and this is a book that's coming out late this summer, is about uh, Marian culture. So what that means is cults to the Virgin Mary. So essentially okay. how the Maya were developing and using the veneration of sacred statues during all of these health crises. So why does the Virgin Mary in particular become deployed as a weapon against disease? Interesting. As a weapon against disease. Mm -hmm. Expand on that for me. So to do this research, I really had to delve into pre-Columbian traditions because um, particularly at the site called Izamal, and Izamal is the site of my dissertation as well. So it's the site that has the best level of preservation of a pre-Columbian plan and a colonial plan that's made right on top. Um, So that was my first work. My second work, my second book, um, is about a Marian icon that is installed um, at that church early in the colonial period, probably as early as 1559. The church is established in 1549. It's one of the first four major monasteries in the peninsula. Um, Like I said, it was built on the remains of a huge Maya metropolis, a a city that in the early classic would have rivaled what Chichen Itza looks like today. Okay, Okay, so huge Maya city. And the friars really remake it into a Spanish-style town. They take one of the tallest pyramids. They shear off the top top half of it. They use those stones to construct the monastic complex. So when you visit Izamal today... You have to walk up 20 feet of a ramp that's actually the base of a pyramid. And so they installed this icon of the Virgin Mary that was supposedly made in Guatemala by a known Spanish sculptor and was uh, procured there, commissioned and procured there, and then brought back by the resident priest whose name many people recognize, Diego de Landa, a famous uh, Franciscan friar who actually comes back as bishop, but in this time period he's just a mere friar, and he does oversee 
later in his life, the largest kind of Inquisition trial that ever takes place in the Yucatan Peninsula, actually in the Americas, and more than 300 Mayas are tortured and killed. That's another chapter of his life story. But before those bad moments, um, he he installs this uh, icon of the Virgin Mary, and she becomes the Virgin of Izamal. Until today, she is the patron saint of the entire Yucatan Peninsula. So she's still very important. Anytime there's any kind of, I don't want to say health crisis anymore, but like, for example, a few years ago, there was a meeting with all of the heads of the Catholic Church in Merida to discuss kind of family planning and family values. And as part of that, they processed this virgin all the way to Merida. It's 45 miles away. And so it's that statue in particular that's important. Well, that statue is the one that they use today is a replacement. The real okay. one caught fire in the middle of the 19th century and gotcha. they found a replacement. But yes, yeah. for all intents and purposes, for those who believe, yeah, it's the Virgin of Isamal. That's all I can think of because I'm originally from Philly is when the, um, I think it was a statue of Benjamin Franklin that we had. Okay. And when it wasn't, um, he was supposed to be at the top of, you know, at the, the, the highest tower, the highest outlook in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And um, they built a building that was taller, and so he wasn't there anymore. Oh, no. And then once they moved him up to that building was, I think, the year that we won the World Series. I think it was baseball. There, but there was something like that uh-huh. where it was that particular statue is the important one. Yep. Yeah. So she's the most important. She's the most powerful. So... In 1649, yellow fever hits the American continent for the first time. Starts in Barbados and then makes its way through Campeche. And this is, it's kind of the last big disease to hit. I mean, malaria later. um, But it's in terms of an epidemic, a pandemic, this is the last one. And it devastates the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, By the end of that summer, by August or September, a conservative estimate is that a third of the population has died. And this is unlike the earlier epidemics. Yellow fever is killing Spaniards, people of African descent, and Mayas alike. So the earlier ones weren't really hitting the African population or the Spanish population. So in this moment of health crises, uh, the Spanish authorities in Merida ask the Franciscan friar, actually the head of the Franciscan church, who's also in Merida, if they can borrow the Virgin Mary um, to perform a nine-day, what's called a novenario. It's a nine-day oratory to her. Um, And so they, it's actually kind of a cute story, you know, very weird way. They um, are granted permission. And so the, basically the lieutenant of the local militia, I suppose being called in these days, and some other important Franciscans get on horseback, and they go all the way out to Izamal. And when they get there, um, the indigenous confraternity, so this is a, I always call them, they're like early modern frats, but they don't really have a place to live. These are, these are groups that are dedicated to the veneration of a particular icon okay. or moment of the Virgin's life, or moment of Christ's life. So the indigenous confraternity of the Virgin of Izamal, who was composed of very elite Maya families from all the surrounding villages and pueblos, they basically tell the Spaniards, I mean, like the governor and the bishop, very important people, sure, we're not happy, but you can have our virgin. Uh, She's only allowed to be gone for 17 days. (laughs) You have four days to walk her there. You have nine days to keep her in the church and four days to walk her back. And uh, so just in case you think about kidnapping her, we're going to hold one of you guys hostage, 
And so they take the the friar who's like basically the head of the the Franciscan order in Yucatan, uh, a guy named Sosa, and they hold him in the Izumal chapel for those 17 days until wow. she comes back. It's a really interesting colonial moment because it it kind of flips on our head how we think about religious jurisdiction yeah. and who's calling the religious shots. Yeah. Um and and while this is like a fun anecdote and it kind of got me like hooked on this project, uh the real anthropological work though came because I had to figure out how Mayas were conceiving of sculpture. So that means I had to go back to pre-Columbian sources and understand kind of just before contact the modes by which deity effigies were being activated and how it was understood that they kind of achieved sacrality. And so I did this in various ways. I did formal analyses. I did a lot of comparative anthropology, looking at lacandones and those kind of practices. I did some epigraphic work looking at a particular term called suhui, which is a, a term in Mayan uh, whereby something will become kind of ritually activated, but it's a, it's a temporary state. And look at how you activate what in our culture would be understood as kind of like dead raw material. And I realized that just by chance, the way that the Virgin Mary the icon that I'm talking about, was procured and then installed in the church, completely replicated the same rituals that were enacted in the pre-Columbian period. So when she was installed at the very, very early moment, the friar didn't know it. Diego de Landa, I don't think, had a clue. But he was tapping into the centuries-old mode of ritual activation. And so from the very beginning of her history in Izamal, she was perfectly posited to be this healing icon. Right. So it makes it makes perfect sense once you understand what I'm calling material sacrality. Okay. Right. And define sacrality for me a little sacredness. bit. Sacredness. Okay. Just yep. sacredness. Just sacredness. Mm-hmm. Yep. Numinosity, right? Something that has kind of these numinous abilities. Okay. So it's just really the fact that they were tapping into this previous way of doing mm-hmm. things is what really is that what let it Catch on. Catch on. I, I, I think about it as grafting, right? Okay. So there's this newly introduced deity, for all intents and purposes, the Virgin Mary. And a lot of scholars have said, I mean, the, the traditional mode of understanding the Virgin Mary in Latin America is that she's hybridized with earlier deities, right? That for, for the Maya, the line has always been, oh, she beca- she's like a new version of the moon goddess. Okay. I've always had a problem with that model <laughs> because, for various reasons, but um, primarily polytheistic peoples have no problem adding new deities right. into their religion. Yeah. That's one of the great things about, about having a polytheistic religion, right? The more the merrier. Yeah. So there's in from just from that kind of like very basic intellectual standpoint, the very fact that indigenous indigenous people would have the or would find it necessary to hybridize anything seems just kind of silly, actually, okay. <laughs> to me. Sorry, scholars who argued that before. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just I just think that they're uh, basically treating the Virgin Mary as a brand new deity. I also, right. as part of this project, uh, researched accounts it, written in Mayan of how she was introduced to Izamal. Okay. And they use the exact same verbs, emel, these verbs in Mayan, that they would use for the descent of deities at the beginning of time. Okay. So they really are understanding her installation as kind of a new world, a new moment, right? right. A new moment in kind of this cyclical history that we all know is paramount to Mesoamerican worldview. Yeah. 
So you've talked a little bit about it, but I just wanted to take a minute to really tie in, um, especially art and anthropology. Mm-hmm. So how how do you relate those two things specifically? Ooh, that's a hard question. <laughs> that's like my whole career question. Um, let's see. How do I relate art and anthropology? Well, I think, you know, the creation of artwork is what makes us human it, 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 for all intents and purposes outside of like, you know, elephants wielding paintbrushes, you know, at <laughs> yeah. tourist spots uh, abroad. Uh, I think that Artwork becomes an art production is a perfect lens through which to understand humanity and human experience. I focus on the Maya because I'm just I've been I'm one of these kids who went to Mexico when I was 12 and just fell head and over heels in love with the Maya. And for me, it was kind of an obvious thing to do with my life. Um, But the Maya had such a complex even from the pre-Columbian time to the colonial period, have such a complex visual culture that is so linked to religion and politics. All of these things that make us human. So for me, it's a really easy link. I don't know how you can study art and not be an anthropologist or be an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and not study art. Well, even archaeology, because you mentioned... Archaeology, yeah. yeah. Because half of the looking at how the churches were formed Mm -hmm. and how... So it's just really tying. You can get all of those fields in together in different ways. And finally, I've been waiting for this my entire career. Finally, we have real archaeologists excavating colonial period sites in Yucatan, which we just haven't had. Right, because most of it's been Maya. Pre-Columbian. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Pre-Columbian Maya. I mean, there's a problem because a lot of the colonial cities are still lived in. Okay. So fair point, right? (laughs) And there's been a little bit of this work done by Elizabeth Graham down in Belize, and her okay. work has been just it's just brilliant and kind of mind-blowing. So I'm hoping in the next kind of decade, maybe we'll have more answers in terms of like the material evidence of this transition. That's awesome. Um, one of the last questions that I want to ask you is, what advice would you give to somebody either in high school or just beginning in college if they want to get into art or anthropology or the combination thereof? What advice? Oh, geez. What do I tell my children? Um, <laughs> stay away. No, no, I don't tell them that. <laughs> um, come to us. Come to us. I, I would tell them that the humanities are not dead. Don't listen to Fox News. Um we as humans need to think about big issues and we need to respect and almost venerate the creative part of our of our bodies and of our you know our abilities and that a career in this field is not impossible it's hard it's harder than it was when i was their age but there are ways you can go to the art schools you know do the summer programs Write annoying emails to professors until they let you on their digs. Like, just go and do and be proactive. That's, and, that's the main thing. And you said that your research just kind of started with that one story it that did. just caught your It attention. did. I mean, my parents, I mean, I have a picture of, uh, I talk about this in the preface of my, of my first book. My parents have a picture of my little sister and I, and I'm trying to remember, I must have been, I don't, maybe I was 12 and she was nine, something like that. Really awful awkward age and of yes. course it's like the ni- early 90s so we're like I think we're in like fluorescent spandex too probably yeah it's, it's awesome um, and we're sitting together at the top of some structure in Chichen Itza and my parents love to say like that's where it started yeah that's where it started you know and you can plant these little seeds in kids heads and you know it's not really to get to college do you understand you can right. grow up and be an archaeologist yep Right. I had no idea that was possible. Yep. I just knew what I liked to read about. Um, but 
that's the other thing I would tell I would tell kids I would tell young the younger generations that they should not go into school high school or college assuming there were only four proper career paths there's a lot more out there a lot more exciting things to do than just be well being a teacher is okay but there's more you can do than that being a doctor is okay there's more you can do than that yeah just to be have a more of a open mind particularly when you come to university yeah and just that it's all really interdisciplinary it so, is and that's what you've why shown us ha- in this yeah is- why do we have departments i yeah. don't know i don't know just I'm starting to wonder <laughs> uh harry potter sorting hat that's all I yeah can yeah think of that. Mm-hmm. um so thank you for being here with of us today thank you uh, if our audience wants to check out your new book what's you uh, you said it's coming out this summer it is it's called idolizing mary then I have the academic colon in there. And then after the colon, it is something like <laughs> Maya Catholic icons in colonial Yucatan. So idolizing Mary, colon, M- academic things. Yes. By idolizing Dr. Mary. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. We can all remember idolizing Mary. Yeah. That's all you need to know. We'll put a link to it in our uh, profile once we get that. Thank once you. Once we get that up. So again, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this bonus episode. In the meantime, while you're waiting for our next episode, subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu. Don't forget to leave a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. (laughs) ¶¶